0: Book Seven, Chapter Four of The History of the Conquest of Mexico. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of the Conquest of Mexico by William H. Prescott. Book Seven, Chapter Four. Disturbances in Mexico. Return of Cortes. Distrust of the court. His return to Spain. Death of Sandoval. Brilliant reception of Cortes. Honours conferred on him. The intelligence alluded to in the preceding chapter was conveyed in a letter to Cortes from the licentiate Thuatho one of the functionaries, to whom the general had committed the administration of the country during his absence. It contained full particulars of the tumultuous proceedings in the capital. No sooner had Cortes quitted it than dissensions broke out among the different members of the provisional government. The misrule increased as his absence was prolonged. At length tidings were received that Cortes, with his whole army, had perished in the morasses of Chiapa. THE MEMBERS OF THE GOVERNMENT SHOWED NO RELUCTANCE TO CREDIT THIS STORY. THEY NOW OPENLY PARADED THEIR OWN AUTHORITY, PROCLAIMED THE GENERAL'S DEATH, CAUSED FUNERAL CEREMONIES TO BE PERFORMED IN HIS HONOUR, TOOK POSSESSION OF HIS PROPERTY WHEREVER THEY COULD MEET WITH IT, partially DEVOTING A SMALL PART OF THE PROCEEDS TO PURCHASING MASSES FOR HIS SOUL, WHILE THE REMAINDER WAS APPROPRIATED TO PAY OFF WHAT WAS CALLED HIS DEBT TO THE STATE. They seized, in like manner, the property of other individuals engaged in the expedition. From these outrages they proceeded to others against the Spanish residents in the city, until the Franciscan missionaries left the capital in disgust, while the Indian population were so sorely oppressed that great apprehensions were entertained of a general rising. Thuathot, who communicated these tidings, implored Cortés to quicken his return. He was a temperate man, and the opposition which he had made to the tyrannical measures of his comrades had been rewarded with exile. The general, greatly alarmed by this account, saw that no alternative was left but to abandon all further schemes of conquest, and to return at once, if he would secure the preservation of the empire which he had won. He accordingly made the necessary arrangements for settling the administration of the colonies at Honduras, and embarked with a small number of followers for Mexico. He had not long been at sea, when he encountered such a terrible tempest as seriously damaged his vessel, and compelled him to return to port and refit. A second attempt proved equally unsuccessful, and Cortes, feeling that his good star had deserted him, saw in this repeated disaster an intimation from heaven that he was not to return. He contented himself therefore with sending a trusty messenger to advise his friends of his personal safety in Honduras. He then instituted processions and public prayers to ascertain the will of heaven, and to deprecate its anger. His health now showed the effect of his recent sufferings, and declined under a wasting fever. His spirits sank with it, and he fell into a state of gloomy despondency. Bernal Díaz, speaking of him at this time, says that nothing could be more worn and emaciated than his person, and that so strongly was he possessed with the idea of his approaching end, that he procured a Franciscan habit, for it was common to be laid out in the habit of some one or other of the monastic orders, in which to be carried to the grave from this deplorable apathy Cortes was roused by fresh advices urging his presence in mexico and by the judicious efforts of his good friend sandoval who had lately returned himself from an excursion into the interior by his persuasion the general again consented to try his fortunes on the seas he embarked on board of a brigantine with a few followers and bade adieu to the disastrous shores of honduras twenty fifth of april fifteen twenty six He had nearly made the coast of New Spain, when a heavy gale threw him off his course, and drove him to the island of Cuba. After staying there some time to recruit his exhausted strength, he again put to sea on the 16th of May, and in eight days landed near San Juan de Olua, whence he proceeded about five leagues on foot to Medellin. Cortes was so much changed by disease that his person was not easily recognised, but no sooner was it known that the general had returned than crowds of people white men and natives thronged from all the neighbouring country to welcome him the tidings spread on the wings of the wind and his progress was a triumphal procession at all the great towns where he halted he was sumptuously entertained triumphal arches were thrown across the road and the streets were strewed with flowers as he passed after a night's repose at tezcuko he made his entrance in great state into the capital the municipality came out to welcome him and a brilliant cavalcade of armed citizens formed his escort while the lake was covered with barges of the indians all fancifully decorated with their gala dresses as on the day of his first arrival among them the streets echoed to music and dancing and sounds of jubilee as the procession held on its way to the great convent of St. Francis, where thanksgivings were offered up for the safe return of the general, who then proceeded to take up his quarters once more in his own princely residence. It was in June 1526 when Cortes re-entered Mexico. Nearly two years had elapsed since he had left it on his difficult march to Honduras, a march which led to no important results, but which consumed nearly as much time and was attended with sufferings as severe as the conquest of Mexico itself. Cortes did not abuse his present advantage. He, indeed, instituted proceedings against his enemies, but he followed them up so languidly as to incur the imputation of weakness, the only instance in which he has been so accused. He was not permitted long to enjoy the sweets of triumph. In the month of July he received advices of the arrival of a juez de residencia on the coast, sent by the court of Madrid, to supersede him temporarily in the government. The crown of Castile, as its colonial empire extended, became less and less capable of watching over its administration. It was therefore obliged to place vast powers in the hands of its viceroys, and as suspicion naturally accompanies weakness, it was ever prompt to listen to accusations against these powerful vassals. In such cases the government adopted the expedient of sending out a commissioner, or juez de residencia, with authority to investigate the conduct of the accused, to suspend him in the meanwhile from his office, and, after judicial examination, to reinstate him in it, or to remove him altogether, according to the issue of the trial. The enemies of Cortes had been, for a long time, busy in undermining his influence at court, and in infusing suspicions of his loyalty in the bosom of the emperor. Since his elevation to the government of the country, they had redoubled their mischievous activity, and they assailed his character with the foulest imputations. They charged him with appropriating, to his own use, the gold which belonged to the crown, and especially with secreting the treasures of Montezuma. He was said to have made false reports of the provinces he had conquered, that he might defraud the Exchequer of its lawful revenues. He had distributed the principal offices amongst his own creatures, and had acquired an unbounded influence not only over the Spaniards, but the natives, who were all ready to do his bidding. He had expended large sums in fortifying both the capital and his own palace and it was evident from the magnitude of his schemes and his preparations that he designed to shake off his allegiance and to establish an independent sovereignty in New Spain. The government, greatly alarmed by these formidable charges, the probability of which they could not estimate, appointed a commissioner with full powers to investigate the matter. The person selected for this delicate office was Luis Ponce de Leon, a man of high family, young for such a post, but of mature judgment, and distinguished for his moderation and equity. The nomination of such a minister gave assurance that the crown meant to do justly by Cortes. The Emperor wrote at the same time with his own hand to the General, advising him of this step, and assuring him that it was taken, not from distrust of his integrity, but to afford him the opportunity of placing that integrity in a clear light before the world. Ponce de Leon reached Mexico in July 1526. He was received with all respect by Cortes and the municipality of the capital, and the two parties interchanged those courtesies with each other, which gave augury that the future proceedings would be conducted in a spirit of harmony. Unfortunately, this fair beginning was blasted by the death of the commissioner in a few weeks after his arrival, a circumstance which did not fail to afford another item in the loathsome mass of accusation heaped upon Cortes. The commissioner fell the victim of a malignant fever which carried off a number of those who had come over in the vessel with him. On his deathbed, Ponce de Leon delegated his authority to an infirm old man, who survived but a few months, and transmitted the reins of government to a person named Estrada, or Strada, the royal treasurer, one of the officers sent from Spain to take charge of the finances, and who was personally hostile to Cortes. The Spanish residents would have persuaded Cortes to assert for himself at least an equal share of the authority, to which they considered Estrada as having no sufficient title but the general, with singular moderation, declined a competition in this matter, and determined to abide a more decided expression of his sovereign's will. To his mortification the nomination of Estrada was confirmed, and this dignitary soon contrived to inflict on his rival all those annoyances by which a little mind, in possession of unexpected power, endeavours to make his superiority felt over a great one the recommendations of Cortes were disregarded, his friends mortified and insulted, his attendants outraged by injuries. One of the domestics of his friend Sandoval, for some slight offence, was sentenced to lose his hand, and when the general remonstrated against these acts of violence, he was peremptorily commanded to leave the city. The Spaniards, indignant at this outrage, would have taken up arms in his defence, but Cortes would allow no resistance, and simply remarking that it was well that those who at the price of their blood had won the capital should not be allowed a footing in it, withdrew to his favourite villa of Coxhuacan, a few miles distant, to wait there the result of these strange proceedings. The suspicions of the court of Madrid, meanwhile, fanned by the breath of calumny, had reached the most preposterous height. One might have supposed that it fancied the general was organizing a revolt throughout the colonies, and meditated nothing less than an invasion of the mother country. Intelligence having been received, that a vessel might speedily be expected from New Spain, orders were sent to the different ports of the kingdom, and even to Portugal, to sequestrate the cargo, under the expectation that it contained remittances to the general's family, which belonged to the crown while his letters, affording the most luminous account of all his proceedings and discoveries, were forbidden to be printed. Fortunately, three letters, forming the most important part of the conqueror's correspondence, had already been given to the world by the indefatigable press of Seville. The court, moreover, made aware of the incompetency of the treasurer, Estrada, to the present delicate conjuncture, now entrusted the whole affair of the inquiry to a commission dignified with the title of the Royal Audience of New Spain. This body was clothed with full powers to examine into the charges against Cortes, with instructions to send him back, as a preliminary measure, to Castile, peacefully if they could, but forcibly if necessary. Still afraid that its belligerent vassal might defy the authority of this tribunal, The government resorted to artifice to effect his return. The President of the Indian Council was commanded to write to him, urging his presence in Spain to vindicate himself from the charges of his enemies, and offering his personal cooperation in his defense. The Emperor further wrote a letter to the audience, containing his commands for Cortés to return as the government wished to consult him on matters relating to the indies and to bestow on him a recompense suited to his high deserts this letter was intended to be shown to cortez but it was superfluous to put in motion all this complicated machinery to effect a measure on which cortez was himself resolved proudly conscious of his own unswerving loyalty and of the benefits he had rendered to his country He felt deeply sensible to this unworthy requital of them, especially on the very theatre of his achievements. He determined to abide no longer where he was exposed to such indignities, but to proceed at once to Spain, present himself before his sovereign, boldly assert his innocence, and claim redress for his wrongs, and a just reward for his services. In the close of his letter to the Emperor, detailing the painful expedition to Honduras, after enlarging on the magnificent schemes he had entertained of discovery in the South Sea, and vindicating himself from the charge of a too lavish expenditure, he concludes with the lofty yet touching declaration, that he trusts his majesty, will in time acknowledge his deserts, but, if that unhappily shall not be, the world at least will be assured of his loyalty." and he himself shall have the conviction of having done his duty, and no better inheritance than this shall he ask for his children. No sooner was the intention of Cortes made known, than it excited a general sensation through the country. Even Estrada relented. He felt that he had gone too far, and that it was not his policy to drive his noble enemy to take refuge in his own land. Negotiations were opened, and an attempt at reconciliation was made through the bishop of Tlaxcala. Cortes received these overtures in a courteous spirit, but his resolution was unshaken. Having made the necessary arrangements, therefore, in Mexico, he left the valley and proceeded at once to the coast had he entertained the criminal ambition imputed to him by his enemies he might have been sorely tempted by the repeated offers of support which were made to him whether in good or in bad faith on the journey if he would but reassume the government and assert his independence of castile On his arrival at Villarica he received the painful tidings of the death of his father, Don Martín Cortés, whom he had hoped so soon to embrace, after his long and eventful absence. Having celebrated his obsequies with every mark of filial respect, he made preparations for his speedy departure. Two of the best vessels in the port were got ready, and provided with everything requisite for a long voyage. He was attended by his friend, the faithful Sandoval, by Tapia, and some other cavaliers most attached to his person. He also took with him several Aztec and Tlascalan chiefs, and among them a son of Montezuma, and another of Mashishka, the friendly old Tlascalan lord, both of whom were desirous to accompany the general to Castile. He carried home a large collection of plants and minerals, as specimens of the natural resources of the country several wild animals and birds of gaudy plumage various fabrics of delicate workmanship especially the gorgeous featherwork and a number of jugglers dancers and buffoons who greatly astonished the europeans by the marvellous facility of their performances and were thought a suitable present for his holiness the pope Lastly, Cortés displayed his magnificence in a rich treasure of jewels, among which were emeralds of extraordinary size and lustre, gold to the amount of two hundred thousand pesos de oro, and fifteen hundred marks of silver. After a brief and prosperous voyage, Cortés came in sight once more of his native shores, and crossing the bar of Saltez entered the little port of Palos in May 1528 the same spot where columbus had landed five and thirty years before on his return from the discovery of the western world cortez was not greeted with the enthusiasm and public rejoicings which welcomed the great navigator and indeed the inhabitants were not prepared for his arrival from palos he soon proceeded to the convent of la ravida the same place also within the hospital walls of which columbus had found a shelter An interesting circumstance is mentioned by historians, connected with his short stay at Palos. Francisco Pizarro, the conqueror of Peru, had arrived there, having come to Spain to solicit aid for his great enterprise. He was then in the commencement of his brilliant career, as Cortés might be said to be at the close of his. He was an old acquaintance, and a kinsman, as is affirmed, of the general, whose mother was a Pizarro, THE MEETING OF THESE TWO EXTRAORDINARY MEN, THE CONQUERORS OF THE NORTH AND OF THE SOUTH IN THE NEW WORLD, AS THEY SET FOOT AFTER THEIR EVENTFUL ABSENCE ON THE SHORES OF THEIR NATIVE LAND, AND THAT, TOO, ON THE SPOT CONSECRATED BY THE PRESENCE OF COLUMBUS, HAS SOMETHING IN IT STRIKING TO THE IMAGINATION. WHILE REPOSING FROM THE FATIGUES OF HIS VOYAGE AT LA RAVIDA, AN EVENT OCCURRED WHICH AFFLICTED CORTES DEEPLY, AND WHICH THREW A DARK CLOUD OVER HIS RETURN. This was the death of Gonzalo de Sandoval, his trusty friend, and so long the companion of his fortunes. He was taken ill in a wretched inn at Palos soon after landing, and his malady gained ground so rapidly that it was evident his constitution, impaired probably by the extraordinary fatigues he had of late years undergone, would be unable to resist it. Cortés was instantly sent for, and arrived in time to administer the last consolations of friendship to the dying cavalier. Sandoval met his approaching end with composure, and, having given the attention which the short interval allowed to the settlement of both his temporal and spiritual concerns, he breathed his last in the arms of his commander. Before departing from La Ravida, Cortes had written to the court, informing it of his arrival in the country. Great was the sensation caused there by the intelligence, the greater that the late reports of his treasonable practices had made it wholly unexpected. His arrival produced an immediate change of feeling. All cause of jealousy was now removed, and as the clouds which had so long settled over the royal mind were dispelled, the Emperor seemed only anxious to show his sense of the distinguished services of his so dreaded vassal, orders were sent to different places on the route to provide him with suitable accommodations and preparations were made to give him a brilliant reception in the capital the tidings of his arrival had by this time spread far and wide throughout the country and as he resumed his journey the roads presented a spectacle such as had not been seen since the return of columbus Cortes did not usually effect an ostentation of dress, though he loved to display the pomp of a great lord in the number and magnificence of his retainers. His train was now swelled by the Indian chieftains, who, by the splendours of their barbaric finery, gave additional brilliancy as well as novelty to the pageant. But his own person was the object of general curiosity. The houses and the streets of the great towns and villages were thronged with spectators, eager to look on the hero, who, with his single arm as it were, had won an empire for Castile, and who, to borrow the language of an old historian, came in the pomp and glory not so much of a great vassal as of an independent monarch. As he approached Toledo, then the rival of Madrid, the press of the multitude increased, till he was met by the duke de bejar the count de aguilar and others of his steady friends who at the head of a large body of the principal nobility and cavaliers of the city came out to receive him and attended him to the quarters prepared for his residence it was a proud moment for cortes and distrusting as he well might his reception by his countrymen it afforded him a greater satisfaction than the brilliant entrance which, a few years previous, he had made into the capital of Mexico. The following day he was admitted to an audience by the Emperor, and Cortés, gracefully kneeling to kiss the hand of his sovereign, presented to him a memorial which succinctly recounted his services and the requital he had received for them. The Emperor graciously raised him and put many questions to him respecting the countries he had conquered. Charles was pleased with the General's answers, and his intelligent mind took great satisfaction in inspecting the curious specimens of Indian ingenuity which his vassal had brought with him from New Spain. In subsequent conversations the Emperor repeatedly consulted Cortés on the best mode of administering the government of the colonies, and by his advice introduced some important regulations, especially for ameliorating the condition of the natives, and for encouraging domestic industry. The monarch took frequent opportunity to show the confidence which he now reposed in Cortés. On all public occasions he appeared with him by his side, and once, when the general lay ill of a fever, Charles paid him a visit in person, and remained some time in the apartment of the invalid. This was an extraordinary mark of condescension in the haughty court of Castile, and it is dwelt upon with becoming emphasis by the historians of the time, who seemed to regard it as an ample compensation for all the sufferings and services of Cortes. The latter had now fairly triumphed over opposition. The courtiers, with that ready instinct which belongs to the tribe, imitated the example of their master, and even envy was silent, amidst the general homage that was paid to the man who had so lately been a mark for the most envenomed calumny. Cortes, without a title, without a name but what he had created for himself, was at once, as it were, raised to a level with the proudest nobles in the land. He was so, still more effectually, by the substantial honours which were accorded to him by his sovereign in the course of the following year. By an instrument, dated 6th of July 1529, the Emperor raised him to the dignity of the Marquis of the Valley of Oaxaca. Two other instruments, dated in the same month of July, assigned to Cortes a vast tract of land in the rich province of Oaxaca, together with large estates in the city of Mexico and other places in the valley the princely domain thus granted comprehended more than twenty large towns and villages and twenty-three thousand vassals the language in which the gift was made greatly enhanced its value the unequivocal testimony thus borne by his sovereign to his unwavering loyalty was most gratifying to Cortes. how gratifying every generous soul who has been the subject of suspicion undeserved will readily estimate yet there was one degree in the scale above which the royal gratitude would not rise neither the solicitations of cortes nor those of the duke de bejard and his other powerful friends could prevail on the emperor to reinstate him in the government of mexico the country reduced to tranquillity had no longer need of his commanding genius to control it and charles did not care to place again his formidable vassal in a situation which might revive the dormant spark of jealousy and distrust it was the policy of the crown to employ one class of its subjects to effect its conquests and another class to rule over them For the latter it selected men in whom the fire of ambition was tempered by a cooler judgment, naturally or by the sober influence of age. Even Columbus, notwithstanding the terms of his original capitulation with the crown, had not been permitted to preside over the colonies, and still less likely would this power be conceded to one possessed of the aspiring temper of Cortes.' but although the emperor refused to commit the civil government of the colony into his hands he reinstated him in his military command by a royal ordinance dated also in july 1529 the marquis of the valley was named captain-general of new spain and of the coasts of the south sea he was empowered to make discoveries in the southern ocean with the right to rule over such lands as he should colonize and by a subsequent grant he was to become proprietor of one-twelfth of all his discoveries. The government had no design to relinquish the services of so able a commander, but it warily endeavoured to withdraw him from the scene of his former triumphs, and to throw open a new career of ambition that might stimulate him still further to enlarge the dominions of the crown thus gilded by the sunshine of royal favour with brilliant manners and a person which although it showed the effects of hard service had not yet lost all the attractions of youth cortes might now be regarded as offering an enviable alliance for the best houses in castile it was not long before he paid his addresses which were favourably received to a member of that noble house which had so steadily supported him in the dark hour of his fortunes The lady's name was Doña Juana de Zuniga, daughter of the second Count de Aguilar, and niece of the Duke de Bejar. She was much younger than himself, beautiful, and, as events showed, not without spirit. One of his presents to his youthful bride excited the admiration and envy of the fairer part of the court. This was five emeralds of wonderful size and brilliancy. These jewels had been cut by the Aztecs into the shapes of flowers, fishes, and into other fanciful forms, with an exquisite style of workmanship, which enhanced their original value. They were, not improbably, part of the treasure of the unfortunate Montezuma, and, being easily portable, may have escaped the general wreck of the noche Triste. The Queen of Charles V, it is said, it may be the idle gossip of a court had intimated a willingness to become proprietor of some of these magnificent baubles, and the preference which Cortes gave to his fair bride caused some feelings of estrangement in the royal bosom, which had an unfavourable influence on the future fortunes of the Marquis. Late in the summer of 1529, Charles V left his Spanish dominions for Italy. Cortes accompanied him on his way, probably to the place of embarkation, AND IN THE CAPITAL OF ARAGON WE FIND HIM, ACCORDING TO THE NATIONAL HISTORIAN, EXCITING THE SAME GENERAL INTEREST AND ADMIRATION AMONG THE PEOPLE AS HE HAD DONE IN Castile. ON HIS RETURN THERE SEEMED NO OCCASION FOR HIM TO PROTRACT HIS STAY LONGER IN THE COUNTRY. HE WAS WEARY OF THE LIFE OF IDLE LUXURY WHICH HE HAD BEEN LEADING FOR THE LAST YEAR, AND WHICH WAS SO FOREIGN TO HIS ACTIVE HABITS AND THE STIRRING SCENES TO WHICH HE HAD BEEN ACCUSTOMED he determined therefore to return to mexico where his extensive property required his presence and where a new field was now open to him for honorable enterprise end of book 7 chapter 4